0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Bringing Adam Parker now. He's chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley, director of quantitative research there uh, as well. Adam, great to have you with us here uh, in the studio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let me just start with with this news uh, about Mexico—the the, the specter here of uh, a new a new tax, twenty percent tax uh, that introduced by the press secretary yesterday. Does
2: that have any interplay with the equity markets? Uh, just the, the, the specter of that
1: that kind of uh, new tax.
2: Um, you know, look, I think it's potentially confusing. So we have it as two offsetting forces. On the Mm. one hand, we do think corporate earnings can go up here in the near term. On the other hand, I think ultimately people are going to pay a lower multiple for those earnings. So I think those are the Kind of pros and cons of how uh, the market's laying it out. Right now, investors aren't really that concerned about it because until it starts hitting the earnings numbers and they have more certainty on it, it's really hard to position for it. And that's why you have seen the market do pretty well, despite the news. These are interesting times. Looking at your most recent note, you said our view of the world has dramatically changed over the last several weeks uh, with a focus on equities. What's the, the most
1: seismic of those changes, been?
2: I'd say twofold. One, corporate earnings. Prior to the Republican sweep, we'd assumed earnings would grow around 6% cumulatively in 2017 and 2018 over those two years. We now have them growing 18%. The biggest drivers of that, of course, are lower corporate taxes, a stimulus program, repatriation of non-U.S. cash. So that's in our base case numbers for 2018, and it certainly was not in early November. So the earnings are a one. And the second thing would be, for the first time in several years, we're forecasting you're going to pay a lower multiple, a lower price-to-earnings ratio for those earnings, owing to the fact that I think there'll be a more hawkish distribution to the outcomes from the Fed, and you you certainly have uh, more volatility and uncertainty as as you guys have been highlighting on the show this morning.
0: Just a, a little bit of investment one hundred and one. Do I want to be in something now, Mathy, that has a tight R squared to the S and P five hundred, or do I want to be original? Do I want an index like approach, or is it a time to have originality in my Adam Parker wisdom?
2: Look, I mean, so there's two ways to answer that question. On the first, on the first one would be asset allocation wise. You always want to have as as uncorrelated of a portfolio as you can. And the challenge has been that we had a risk on trade and everything goes up, and then we have a risk off trade and everything goes down over the last you know, since the financial crisis. So getting that diversity from US equities has been tough. And then secondly, the way I think about it is always going to be how do I beat that index? So we're always focused on, you know, hey, if, we're, if we have a big exposure to banks in the portfolio, well, we're overweight utilities because that's the sector with the lowest correlation to the banks. We're always trying to figure out how to not, uh, you know, Texas hedge, so to speak, mm. Tom. The, uh, the, the watch words so much as there have been that reflation trade here over the last few weeks. How are you regarding that right now? So we've been really working on what we call the fade gauge. You know, How are we going to time when to fade that reflation rally? Uh, I think the most egregious parts of that chain are probably the infrastructure industrial stocks. We'd had a big overweight in that last year. We downgraded... That group recently. The thinking is just that that stimulus is probably not a first hundred day priority. And a number of the stocks that have let's call mm-hmm. it five to ten percent revenue exposure to a infrastructure stimulus program are up forty, fifty, sixty percent since November eighth. So if you're if you're thinking to yourself you want to fade the reflation Trade a little bit, maybe it's Washington right. gridlock or whatever. I think that's probably the most egregious part of the of the uh, chain.
0: Adam, one more question. I know you've got to get onto a Morgan uh, Stanley day. Small mid cap, large cap. I'm always a lover of mid cap. There's a lot of academic research on that. But which way is the way you play if you've got to play right now? No.
2: So look, I mean, we're talking about the reflation trade in the last question. Sure, the small cap uh, rally was also a bit of a reflation trade. Yeah. To me, it's a little bit less onerous than that industrial industrial trade. So I'd rather stay long small caps here in case we get some more positive news uh, on on taxes, where the you know the small caps could benefit more or their currency exposures left, as we talked about on your television program. Right. You know, small caps. Uh, we'll do better on the earnings front if the dollar strengthens. So I, I think that's probably okay still. And if I'm going to start fading the reflation trade. That wouldn't be necessarily the yeah. first part I would.
0: Some nuance there, Adam yeah. Parker. Thank you so much, Warren so Stanley, this morning. Greatly appreciate uh, your time. What an interesting day. Joining us now, Mike Zenko of the Council on Foreign Relations, and just to give you a, w- a window into how good CFR is, he's actually within screaming distance of the acclaimed Elizabeth Economy, who's <laughs> truly to see CFR's strongest assets on China, and and she and I'm sure Mike Zenko go back and forth on the Russia-China um, axis. Micah, your expertise is on our defense systems and how we integrate with Russia when you see the media flow on the Pentagon, when you see the media flow on Putin, what does the media most get wrong right now? I think what it most gets wrong
3: is that the Russia poses this unique existential threat to the United States as of today. Of course, since about the late nineteen sixties, the United States could have destroyed America multiple times over, as America can destroy multiple times over Russia. We have a long term relationship and understanding about our clear red lines, what areas of geography we care about, what we're willing to defend. And to a large extent, uh, um, those are well-established between Moscow and Washington. The problem is that Vladimir Putin wants to push all these boundaries, both in the Baltics and in the Middle East and with U.S. allies like Turkey. And that's where there's a lot of incoherence and uh, unclarity.
0: Good. It's incoherence week here. Will the new president of the United States allow the red lines to be nudged west? Well, the president has said uh,
3: that unless these countries, quote, pay up— I'm not sure what that means. If it means they have to increase their defense spending to two percent of GDP, which is a nominal NATO goal, or whether they have to physically transfer their uh, currency into the U.S. Treasury, or the U.S. will remove its artillery and uh, and infantry forces from the Baltics, which serve as a sort of tripwire from Russia from invading, or or, or using uh, below sort of conventional warfare level interference. Um, so that level of uh, uh, of mistrust and uncertainty is growing because General Mattis says. NATO is a critical alliance. If we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it today. And the commander-in-chief has said repeatedly that it is obsolete.
1: Help us with understanding the, the problem with mid-level personnel – uh, in Washington right now, a few weeks back, we talked with retired admiral James Tavridis now of the Fletcher School at Tufts, and he said uh, he's concerned but not worried yet. He'll, he's going to give us a few more weeks to see if they can staff up the NSC and uh, other mid-level positions of the State Department, the Defense Department. Uh, there was this piece in The New York Times yesterday uh, and then in other outlets about how uh, a number of career foreign service officers were asked to, to leave the state, Department. high-level career foreign service officers were asked to leave how worrisome is this to you now, as we get uh, further and further into the Trump administration?
3: Well, you need, uh, you know, professionals with a lot of experience, and but more than that, you need clear guidance because right now you have a president and a secretary of state and a secretary of defense saying different things. Uh, guidance from the most senior levels broker interagency disputes, and they provide the principles that everyone is supposed to adhere to. Right now, for example, in the South China Sea, we have uh, Rex Tillerson, who has made a incredibly new claim that China will, quote, not be allowed to build on its uh, disputed atolls that it has militarized forces on. And then the White House uh, spokesperson said that it is now U.S. policy to defend international areas from countries trying to take them over. International areas, which include the atolls, which we don't recognize as belonging to any countries, that's 70% of the surface of the earth. Uh, this should be incredibly alarming if I'm a military planner. What, do I, what does this mean? What do I have to do to actually to assure this happens? So the mid-level people are waiting for the seniors to become uh, uh, appointed, so they then provide the guidance, so they implement and actually carry out foreign policy day to day.
1: We see the president's fondness for generals. I think of Secretary Mattis, Secretary Kelly. Do, do they change their thinking, their way of acting when they're out of uniform? Do you expect them to act differently than they did? Or, or is the ethos very much the same now that they're uh, in civilian positions?
3: Sure. If you're a general officer like Mike Flynn or Jim Mattis, you serve for 36 to 38 to 40 years. So it's hard to, to leave. Shake that. To shake that. <laughs> yeah. once. I mean, you come through the professional military education system. You receive common set of... Uh, principals you go to the same schools you have the same doctrine you tend to have the same worldview but it's a very different job the General Mattis is now a retired general. He is a senior civilian appointee running the Pentagon. He's not there to provide professional military <coughs> advice to the to the president. That is the job of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So uh, 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 getting these people reacclimated to civilian policymaking is going to be different than okay. serving in the military. Th-
0: this has been brilliant. All I ask is two things. you got to come back here with all the news flow we're seeing. And if ever again possibly Russia and China line up in the news We will drag you and Dr. Economy in here, and we'll have a Zenko Economy hour. Wow. Would that be good, David? Full hour. Very
1: good. They share a printer, we learned.
0: Yeah, that would be good. (laughs) Mike Zenko with the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior fellow. Uh, They're just brilliant there in Russia. That's what we're trying to do, folks, within the incredible news flow, is just bring you experts. You may agree, you may disagree with them, but at least it gets away from some of the collegial hysterity. Hysterity. Yes, that right? Hysterity, hysterical. Like Hysteri- yeah, very, oh, the, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's Friday, I can't talk. What do you want? <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. What a wonderful guest to speak to right now. I can't think of a bot guy I'd rather talk to you right now than Charles Dumas as a prime minister comes to um, the White House. Charles, good morning. Is America diverging from the rest of the world in economic growth? in higher interest rates, in a Trump reflation, and a strong U.S. dollar? Or is that a way overweight for January of this year?
4: I I think that's a slight exaggeration, I've got to say. The the fact is, Tom, that we've got pretty good growth going um, in Britain and on the continent. Um, So I think the reflation is global, actually, not just a a U.S. phenomenon. But the U.S. is ahead in terms of position in the cycle and – and, and certainly, of course, this fiscal stimulus adds something.
1: Charles, do my help us understand the motivations for Theresa May coming to you at the US right now? There's a special relationship, of course, but uh, when it comes to brokering a trade deal, what's she hoping for?
4: Well, I mean, <laughs> the, this whole meeting is about guys who sort of need one another, really, isn't it? I mean, uh, Trump exa- doesn't have an enormous quantity of um, good friends in the world, given the way he's sort of throwing his weight around. I mean, the Chinese probably don't love him, Mexicans don't love him. Uh, he's been pretty rude about the Euros, so, um, you know, they don't love him either. Um, so he needs a friend somewhere, and um, Mrs May needs a, needs a friend pretty badly too because, um, you know, the Euros are explaining to her how she's uh, Britain's a lot smaller than the rest of the uh, Eurozone put together, the European Union, and so, um, you know, they better get real about negotiating a trade agreement. Well, uh, obviously, um, it looks much uh, less one-sided. If um, if if she's already got something up her sleeve um, with the United States,
1: I could cite a thousand articles here in the press today which analogize her to Margaret Thatcher, Donald Trump to, to Ronald Reagan. Is that analogy good as you see it? Do you, do you think that there 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 is something to that?
4: Well, I mean, uh, in that in a sort of broad brush um, kind of relationship sense, yes. In terms of um, the. Uh, nature of the two people, not particularly. No, uh, and in terms of the general situation, um, I would say not that either. I mean, the um, I, I don't think Reagan was ever engaged in a in a sort of um, a concept of um, everyone victimising the United States um, or in in kind of uh, a trade war um, approach to to the world at large and <clears throat> massive confrontation. His confrontation was. Um, Strategic with the Soviet Union, as it then was.
1: She delivers this big speech yesterday in front of Republican lawmakers in in Philadelphia. She gave a a big speech on Brexit. I think it was last Tuesday. The the news flow has been so extreme, I'm I'm losing track of time. Delivered another speech in Davos on the heels of that. Is her message getting clearer? Is it getting more refined when it comes to Brexit, when it comes to trade post-Brexit?
4: Yeah, it is. It's getting clearer, not in the sense that it's much clearer than it ever was. It's simply that it's now clear that... um, that Yes, um, we, we are happy to um, contemplate the fact that there may not be an agreement with the Eurozone or the European Union and that, um, it, you know, that wouldn't be a disaster. Um, and people have sort of actually got over yeah. some of the shock of Brexit because it, for a lot of people it was just a sort of a, a, a trauma really right. um, in, in Britain, the Remainers. And um, and and they're getting over the shock, and they're realizing the world doesn't right. come to an end, you know. And so, um, one way or another, I think things are settling down.
0: Charles, your world is a world of immovable forces. in In the flow world, it is is it, in the flow world. It is about capital flows clicking in at some point, even as we analyze rel- relative interest rates. Are we at a point where capital flow analysis? clicks in with a vengeance with some of these currency pairs?
4: Well, I think um, the capital flows, um, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one to answer that because, um, first of all, um, capital flows are not the only flows. You've got current account flows, and the eurozone has a current account surplus of half a trillion dollars. The U.S. has a current account deficit that's larger than that. So um, that's a natural flow that sustains the euro and uh, makes this business of um, interest differentials not the only game in town. Um, and so far it has been to a great degree the only game in town, but I, I'm not so massively optimistic about a, a, a dollar going up, uh, if, if, if that is an optimistic view uh, in the current situation. And um, the place where I think capital flows will um, carry exchange rate up is probably... The the pound, actually, because um, you're looking at a a pound sterling where uh, the interest rates uh, are at a quarter percent because the Bank of England got in a panic about um, Brexit. But actually, what we have is a full employment economy with a substantial devaluation, a big surge of import prices, and everyone's expecting inflation to be 25 to 3%. Well, in that scenario can you really possibly envisage um, interest rates staying anywhere near a quarter percent? Um, And they're almost certainly going to be going up a long way. So, um, you know, if capital flows are going to swing anything, it'll probably be sterling upwards.
1: Charles, we'll learn something more about the relationship between the president and the prime minister today. What are you learning about uh, President Trump's perspective on on trade from uh, the way that he is engaging with, shall we say, uh, the Mexican government right now?
4: (laughs) Well, um, I mean, I think that Trump sort of sees things from... standpoint of taking a very tough negotiating position Uh, and um, what we haven't yet seen is um, what he's like when he moves to settle something rather than um, just sort of stake out a a position. Um, I I can remember the days when um, in 1990 I was working for J.P. Morgan and Trump became the world's first negative billionaire Mm. and he uh, negotiated a very good deal with the banks who had lent him money, which is Citibank Mm -hmm. and um, Bankers Trust and Co., Um, um uh, And he handled negotiations very well. So we'll see. Um But uh, at the moment, we've just seen the staking out position.
0: Charles, help me here with Trade 101. I get the idea that there's U.S.-Mexican trade. But then how much of it is not just simply the case of corona that John Tucker's going to get from Mexico coming over? If it's something more con- more complex than a case of corona, like a car... There's a lot of back and forth, isn't there, in the manufacturing of that one unit?
4: Yeah, I think the um, the business of supply chains is probably the area where this whole trade policy needs thinking through a bit more carefully. Um, uh, as you say, the, <laughs> and um, there are a whole lot of things you might be buying from Mexico which um, have a whole lot of stuff in them which could be made in China or could be made in um around the corner in, in the United States. And so the guys who are making those bits that then go out and have a little bit added to them in Mexico and then come back to the U.S. market, they're not going to be too happy about um, having that cut off. So, um, it, and, and that's, a, that's a, a broad problem with um, any, anything other than straightforward um, uh, import duties or the effect of an exchange rate change.
0: It begs questions
1: about complexity here, about how long it would take to adjust if we saw more protectionism, if we saw the kind of tariffs imposed that uh, President Trump's press secretary suggested yesterday. Give us some sense of, of the complication here.
4: Well, I think, it, I, I mean, the complication very much depends on the scale of the whole thing. I mean, we've heard about this border tax idea, for example. Uh, if you look at the numbers, you find that um, if, if you if you wanted to... Uh, yield half the yield of the federal corporation tax um that would be 220 uh billion dollars and that would be a 10% um import duty without if you had to, no exceptions to any imports um but of course um it would impact very very differently uh, people who were um who uh, who were in the different situations we've just discussed in terms of supply chains um but you know if that's, that's about the limit of what one could imagine being feasible. Uh, when people start talking about 20, or 30 or 45% um, import duties, I mean, it would be such a shattering uh, effect um, that I don't think uh, it would ever have a chance actually of getting passed through the Congress. And you've got to remember that all of this stuff is basically going to add to the cost of the living and um, potentially therefore hurt some of the people who um, were most enthusiastic voters for the Republicans.
1: Charles Sumo, we're awaiting uh, numbers from the Commerce Department here in the U.S. on on growth in the U.S. at the end of last year. We got uh, figures in the U.K. yesterday, expansion of 0.6% in the last three months of 2016. Fold that into what's going on with the Bank of England uh, right now. How are they interpreting those figures, and what's your sense of when we could see a rate rise?
4: Well, I think the Bank of England's problem is that it had a forecast about what was going to happen as a result of Brexit, which um, is way out of line with what's actually happened. And so far, we've just had the short term being out of line. Um, their, their view remains, um, their fundamental view remains that there will be a lot yeah. of people who, in one form or another, just sort of shy off investing in Britain. Well, we don't think that's true, and to the extent it is true, it will probably be outweighed by the fact that the very cheap exchange rate makes um, the country a right. very attractive um, location and very profitable. So, um, one way or another, I think the Bank of England is going to be caught on the wrong foot and it's going to have to tighten pretty sharply during the course of this year.
0: Charles, thank you so much. Charles Dumont with Lombard Street uh, Research. One James Glassman of J.P. Morgan. Um, It's unfair, Jim, to, to slice and dice a first look and have you do that one minute and forty seconds into the report?
1: If anyone could, though, he'd be the he'd be premier. the That's one right. to do it.
0: <laughs> but it does speak of a dampened first look at fourth quarter, a dampened animal spirit. What is the state of our animal spirit right now?
5: Well, the looking backwards in the rearview mirror, which this number does, uh, it's not been great, right? But you get a sense when you look at some of the more recent things that uh... there's a little more optimism is showing up in capex surveys the manufacturing trends are starting to pick up a little bit profits are doing a little better i think the the real value of gdp it's sort of telling you a story that we've you know, trying to help understand why yeah. things feel so squishy it's telling us a story that we know, you know that we sort of know what's been going on through 2014 we were doing pretty well and then all of a sudden we hit a brick wall yeah. and it was the energy sector and you saw business construction activity plunging then that cascaded into capex down and then for the last you know for this past year 2016 it was really more of an inventory adjustment in reaction to that yeah. so this is all about the oil adjustment and you know consumers have been doing okay not great but okay and it's the business sector that's really been yeah. going through this big absorption that feels like it's coming to an end right. even even aside from the changing of the garden washington right. it felt to me like things are beginning to shift because the inventory adjustments over and that's why you're seeing manufacturing activity picking up in these ISM surveys, well, and profits doing so better.
0: Buried in this is a lousy net exports number, negative 1.7, which is a big, fat, ugly number. So guys like me, and Jim, you're going to explain this to our audience, go to real final sales, which is actually a pretty good number. Exactly. Explain real final sales versus the export-import crater that we witness. Well, Real Final Sales is
5: more a story about what we're buying, what consumers are buying. How, what we buy, though, whether it comes from abroad or domestic, that's what affects GDP. So if we're buying a lot of stuff, but it's buying, we're buying more imported things, things from abroad, then that tends to translate into slower GDP. But, but broadly, the, the, you know, strong demand is a good sign for everything because because we're all so interconnected. There's so many things made all over the world that the stronger demand by Americans means that we're lifting everybody, and eventually it kind of comes back to us. So the more we help others, the more we help ourselves. That's the basic idea.
0: Uh, David Gerro, I'd point out quickly here, investment's really not all that bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's got noise. Yeah, that's it's starting hard. to
5: shift because all, yeah. that, all that energy activity is starting to, that's that, much of that adjustment's behind us. So we're already seeing rig counts up dramatically. We're probably going to see more upside on that in the next quarter.
1: Uh, Jim Glassman, help us with the long-term perspective here. There's a meh quality to these numbers to last, what, six, seven years now. True, fair. Yep. Uh, yep. W- what does that say to you, and what does it say about going forward?
5: You know, people are surprised. If you asked me back in 2009, what kind of recovery are we going to have if we grow 2%, which is what we've been doing, I would, and m- most of my peers would say that's not a recovery. 2% growth is not what we're used to for for a recovery. So I think the way, but the, and yet when you look at all the things about the economy except for growth, we're looking at all normal, the economy seems to be normal, and we're getting back on our feet. We're not quite there yet, but we're seeing a lot of normal things happening that normally, that happen in a recovery. And the reason that's happening is because our demographics in the background, the Fed, the Fed has a bunch of analysis on this, the working age population is slowing down, has slowed down quite a bit. And what that means is we don't have to grow as rapidly as we're used to thinking in order to get back on our feet. So 2% growth seems kind of unimpressive. And yet when you look at everything else about our recovery, it's pretty, pretty impressive. 15 million jobs up, unemployment down, construction activity everywhere doing well, the fiscal budget coming back down, the underwater problem gone, the valuation of the stock markets come back to normal. This is pretty incredible that this is happening seven to eight years after a real serious downturn back in 2008 and
1: 2009. Just a quick question here. Fold this into the, to, to the numbers we've gotten on the housing market uh, this week.
5: You know, the housing market is very volatile. We're, we're in a volatile time of the month, of, of the year. Housing activity has been the slowest to recover because, the, frankly, the reason is because a lot of our young people who really are on the margin, they're the ones that – need new housing, and young people have been slow to come back into the job market because it was a difficult market for them. So the whole housing sector, it's recovering, but we're not quite there yet. It's probably the last sector yeah. to fully recover.
0: On a change-GDP basis, and I'm going to come back and talk about this with, with May and Trump uh, uh, greeting today, am I right that the United Kingdom fourth-quarter GDP is a bigger number, 2.2 percent, Jim Glass versus our 1.9 percent? Is that right? <laughs> it's impressive. Yeah. yeah. We and I think, you
5: know, to, to me, you're seeing you're <clears throat> seeing that same kind of thing, by the way, in the European region. OK. Japan.
0: Japan and I think that's telling. OK, you. Jim, we're going we're to run out of time. We're going to come back with Jim Glassman and talk about this today.
1: Uh, let me ask you here, uh, Jim, about how you process all of this in light of having a new administration in Washington, a new administration that is promising to do so much, change so much, uh, changing so much without promising to do it even as well, as we saw yesterday with the announcement of this border uh, adjusted tax. How much import do you give the numbers like the ones we got today?
0: Well,
5: I mean, the airport important because they're t- giving you some insight into the dynamics that's been playing through the U.S. economy. And I think had there not been a change in the... Changing of the guard, we probably would be a little more cautious about the outlook for 2017. Uh, But but I think what you can say, looking at GDP, is that the bulk of the drag from the energy adjustment is probably behind us. What's passing, we're starting to see a shift in capex picking up. We see that in the surveys. You saw in the durable goods report this morning, by the way. Looking behind the headlines, the shipment, the non, the capital goods area was quite good actually. So I I think you know GDP is important. If it tells you what's in the rearview mirror, the thing is we're. We're kind of uncertain about how to think about what's coming with the Trump administration. But I think the general idea driving the market is that we're going to get more focus on the economy. That's, you know, sort of the message coming out of the election and more focus on uh, more business focus, you know, time out for regulation. And and you can sort of see this showing up in the in the CapEx surveys. So, you know, one one thing in in a way, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of a lot of debate about the tax reform plan they've got. But the equity market is responding in a way that monetizes those expectations. The equity market is up almost $2 trillion since early November, and that does have an effect on consumer spending in the course of the year. So we don't have to know a lot of the details of what's coming as long as what's happening is sort of in line with the optimistic view that's driving the market.
1: Yeah, pull back the curtain a little bit more on those durable goods numbers if you, if you would. Uh, I know we had a lot of commercial aircraft bookings uh, recently. Yeah, uh, so, and, the, and so I, the headline yeah, is noisy.
5: Yeah, the headlines always noisy. the thing that we economists tend to focus on is non-defense capital spending. So orders were up big, uh, big time, and shipments, which is about current production, that's what's showing up in all these G- in the GDP figures, which are a little, had a little better capex spending. It's it's uh, shipments and orders of non-defense capital goods that are the kind of the most important part of this report, and those trends are all picking up, and that sort of that sort of lines up with the surveys we're seeing from the Federal Reserve banks that show that CapEx intentions are picking up really quite significantly. Maybe that's partly sentiment because of the change in Washington, but I think there's something real going on in there, too.
0: From the depths of 14, 15, and 16, our animal spirit, Jim Glassman, is up to a cracking 3.5%. I have a moving average study, folks. I'll feature this on Facebook Live. I'll get it out on Twitter, and I probably will end up doing this on television on Monday if they let me in the building again. (laughs) And, and, and Jim, I look at the four-year presidential moving average. I look at the 10-year 40-quarter moving average. We're not getting it done. Are we at a point where we must inflate? Give up any real growth optimism and just give the illusion of money uh, inflation to jumpstart this puppy? I, I
5: don't think so. I mean, I, we still have uh, hidden pockets of unemployment. There's still, as somebody put it, we're not we're not really up at our potential yet. So there's merit in trying to figure out how to re-energize the economy. And frankly, the more important reason to do this is it's very it's burdensome on the working population to finance the the government's income support programs. If we can't figure out how to get the economy moving faster, we're going to run into big challenges. It's going to put more and more burden on young people.
1: I keep bringing this up. uh, I brought it up throughout the week, but I go back to that question from the press briefing on Monday about uh, what's the unemployment rate in the U.S., and and I'm just eager to hear your your perspective, Jim Glassman, on uh, how big an issue that's going to be here, measurement of the labor market here in the year 2017.
5: You know, it's always challenging. I, I really think the official unemployment rate is a useful starting point. But the truth is, in this cycle, there have been a couple populations of people who are we know are unemployed, and they're just not in those numbers. Part-timers, people who are working part-time involuntarily, they, sh- they don't show up as unemployed. That's been a real big challenge in this cycle. And the other problem is the young people, 20, 20s and 30-year-olds, they, they dropped out, and went, a lot of them went back to school. There's about... Two million of them still out. So the way I look at it, I don't really know what's happening to people in their 50s who might have lost a job and are giving up. But if you look at the people who are in their prime working years and you, and you take account of this part-time issue, I think you could make a claim right. that the unemployment rates come down to about 6%. Jim, which, which, and it's making progress, but we're not quite there yet. Okay,
0: I'm looking at the decade moving average of our animal spirit. From 2006 Nominal GDP has declined 45 percent from nominal GDP, Jim Glassman, a 5.6 percent to a run rate of about 3 percent. That that decline tells me wage growth could be problematic. Do you see signs of wage growth?
5: It's picking up a little, uh, and no surprise that it's taken this long to get yeah. going, but we are, we are starting to see something, and I think it's going to get harder. We're going to, businesses are going to find it harder and harder to find people, and we're going to start to see pockets of you know, people doing much better. So that's my expectation.
1: Last question. You're just about energy. You alluded to it earlier, the role that it's playing here in the, the numbers that we got uh, today. Give us a sense of where you think oil, oil is headed here, Jim.
5: I, you know, I think where we are, we, we've got a lot of potential. There's a lot of supply that this shale technology has opened, given us access to. So I really think people in the industry think that we're probably going to hang around the current levels, forty to sixty level. I, don't, I doubt we're going to go back to hundred dollars because there's so much out there that we've learned how to tap. If prices go up and look, look what's going on now. Oil prices have recovered to about fifty, and all of a sudden you're seeing drilling activity picking up, which tells you um, there's the we, we're very sensitive to this. There's a capacity to open up new supplies if oil prices do better. So I I kind of think in this range for a year or so and maybe eventually up to the $60 Mm. range sort of makes sense.
4: Mm.
0: Is there, very quickly here, Jim Glassman, do you have an optimum level of animal spirit of nominal? Do we just have to get it above 4%? I
5: think so. I, I, I I think for the next couple of years we may get it because we are getting some new focus on capex and maybe some of this push the the elections have got us focused more on economic issues we may get up there but i i really think you need to see growth up in that range you need to see something more like five percent growth nominal
0: yeah i got this chart folks i'll put it out on social and i'll have it for monday On television, David, it's just just absolutely remarkable. I'm going to take nominal GDP back to when uh, young Glassman was at Northwestern under the tutelage of Mr. Gordon. Uh, Jim Glassman, very valuable. Thank you so much. We'll miss you, Jobs Day. uh, This time um, around. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.